expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. It's going to be a jam-packed episode this week, episode 166 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Nick, let's not waste any time. We're going to dive right in right here in the intro to our thoughts on the season finale of Gotham. And what were the biggest, these are going to be spoiler-filled, by the way, so biggest moment for you right off the top. What do you think? Oof. I would have to say the end. It was a start off right at the end with Bruce Wayne, family getting robbed, basically, in the alleys like he was when he was younger, and he just drops down. Does a busts a combo on a guy, goes right back up, and he takes the mask off, and it's him. And I'm like, we getting the start of Batman now. Like we are like everybody's been bitching and moaning. This isn't a Batman show. Well, you're, you're gonna start getting them now. It looks like. Yep. Not only are we gonna get the start of that, we're gonna get to see the start of Catwoman as well. Because I'm gonna go with Selena, and we, we saw the whip and her and Tabitha, and she's clearly a natural. We saw the kind of separation between her and Bruce in the hospital with Alfred and everything like that, and they had kind of their falling out. So now it looks like they're gonna go their separate ways. So it seems like we're getting the beginnings of two big names in the Batman universe. Well, actually, more than that. Well, yeah, of course, you have the formation of the Iceberg Lounge, which, of course, is Penguin's famed hangout. And this season, especially this finale, we're getting a lot more into that Batman mythos. I think that these past couple of seasons was just setting it up. And then now, I think coming into the fall, we're going to get deeper into it because, well, Butch Gilzine was shot in the head by Barbara. And he's in the hospital, and what do we find out? That's not his real name. I'd like to let you, James, reveal that for the people out there. Ah, yes. It was revealed on the chart by the doctors that his name is Cyrus Gold. And nope, you don't have to Google that, kids. That's Solomon Grundy. So little did we know when we talked to Drew Powell earlier on in the season that he would end up being Solomon Grundy at season's end. And man, I mean, it makes perfect sense now, doesn't it? Seem like it does? It does. Now, here's a question. Do you think he knew that he was going to become Solomon Grundy at the time we interviewed him? Or do you think it was one of those things where he read the finale script and he's like, oh, I'm being oh, this guy? I think I don't think he knew. Or that early in the season, I don't think he knew. But I think that once they started turning the corner and those final table reads and stuff, and you see that and you go, oh, Oh, so I am sticking around. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I, I messaged Drew. I'm like, I'm like, so you're you sticking around? Like, like you know, kind of like I was talking about how emotional Butch getting killed meant to me. Because it was. He was, I love, he was one of my favorite characters on the show. And I want to talk about this too. Like, Free, Freeze got a new costume. And it looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm happy. Like, I'm really happy the way they set this up. And it looks like we're finally got that, that, that break between James Gordon and, uh, and Lee. So I'm happy about that. But there's something in the episode I want to talk about that I did not like in the finale. And, of course, that was – he was teased last week towards the end of the episode, the penultimate episode. And we saw him, Raish al Ghul, and his interactions with Bruce Wayne. And I got to tell you, after seeing how Arrow did Raish, I'm kind of disappointed. Yeah, I mean, the, the look was okay. Now, granted, this is a very small sample size, too, but – yeah, I, I got to tell you, especially since that that race from Arrow is so fresh in your mind, this just didn't quite it didn't quite hit with me. And I know that we we've still got some chances going forward to to find out what race is going to be like on Gotham. But 
Uh, yeah, I'm with you, man. I just it, I didn't get that wow feeling like I did on Arrow, or even in Batman Begins, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, we saw the whole the Lazarus pool. It's not really a pit. It's more of a pool in this one. But something that I will say about Rache that I did like, and it wasn't about the character. It was just how he made Bruce and Alfred's bond even stronger because Bruce kills Alfred, and then he's like, oh, my God, what did I do? And I just want to say, man, Sean Pertwee – an amazing job. That scene yeah. where he's interrogating Bruce earlier on in the episode, and he's just trying to get those emotions, get those memories back, man. You felt for him. I mean, that, Sean did an amazing yeah. job. That whole thing wrecked me, dude. Yeah. That was, that was rough. I mean, that, was, that whole thing, that whole episode, that interaction between he and Bruce was really rough. That, that one wrecked me pretty good. What didn't wreck me? The death of Fish Mooney. No. And, and, and they pretty much... It's it's almost like they spelled it out for us when it happened too. Like this is it. This is what she <laughs> says. I've done this enough times to know when it's it. It's like everybody on the staff of Gotham was waving a flag saying, "This is it. This is the last time you'll see Fish Mooney. <laughs> we don't want to hear about it anymore." Well, well, again, like going back to the first season, we say she's a bridge character, and that's what she was in this for Penguin. She's always been that bridge character. So now that he's got the Iceberg Lounge, now that he is. Really coming to his, his his suit, if you will, and his just who he is as a character. I'm excited about the next season. Now, before we move on to our what we're reading segment, real quick, what's something that you're very excited about going to next season? I'm very excited about all of the new beginnings that it seems like everybody has. That we were kind of touching on throughout. It seems like you know how the beginning of this last season of Arrow, it seemed like kind of a clean slate. Well, this next season of Gotham, I think, is almost a similar type of clean slate where we saw so many, I mean, Barbara and Tabitha, that thing's, you know, that's that's gone now, and with Bush as well. <laughs> it went the way of Batman Returns. <laughs> yes, Literally. it did. A lot, of, Literally. a lot of homage to Batman Returns this year. But, <laughs> I mean, Bruce and Selina, that one's, that one's, you know, severed. You know, like you said, Lee and, and Jim, that one's severed. So it seems like we're going to see a lot of new starts for a lot of characters, and I think that's what I'm most excited about. I'm excited about that because, again, you're closing the book on certain things, and you're starting anew in terms of just directions in which these characters can go. I'm very excited and more intrigued to see how it does in the new time slot, the new day, Thursdays. So it's going to be interesting in the fall what's going to happen. So it's going to be really interesting. I mean, we got the whole Solomon Grundy angle, and I'm really excited. Of course, I love the Riddler, so I'm really excited to see how his and Penguin's relationship and their rivalry really blows up going into next season. It's going to be really, really fun. Absolutely. I'm James with him alongside. The Murphy Warm I'm Nick Vitaglia. Come up next, we'll be diving into two new comics this week because what we're reading is coming your way. This is Nathan Darrow from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you were actually discussing the end of something this week. Yeah, and it's something that we had the writer on for John Lehman not too long ago. It's the final issue, number four, of Predator versus Judge Dredd versus Aliens, which, of course, is the partnership between Dark Horse and IDW, written by John Lehman, art by Chris Mooneyham, and then Michael Aitea does the letters, I mean, excuse me, the colors, letters actually done by Michael Heisler. Now, if you haven't been reading... Predator versus Judge Dredd versus Aliens. Just really quickly, of course, it is the combination of all three franchises. And there's a character called Dr. Reinstadt, who basically has this 
spaceship completely jammed full of these xenomorph hybrid animals and humans and stuff like that. And he's teamed up with, remember, Archbishop Emoji from the first issue. They've kind of teamed up and they're headed towards Mega City One. And this is what Dread has to stop. But he's not alone because he's got two Predators with him that are going to try to stop this. And that's kind of where the story picks up. And you see not just the unleashing of these xenomorph hybrid characters on Mega City 1. You also see the interaction between Dread and the Predators. And that's kind of very interesting because it's almost like a you're forced to trust somebody that you can't possibly trust. And you know Dread's all about the law and he knows that these are aliens in his city. So he's just not quite sure exactly how to trust them. But he knows and he's even said, you know, I can't do the, no, actually it's Anderson who tells him, who's with him, says, you, this is one you can't do by yourself. And you know, when it comes to Judge Dredd, that's not an easy pill to swallow. You know, when I reviewed Alien Covenant a couple weeks ago, one of the things I wish they did was, you know, let's bring the Xenomorphs to Earth and see what happens. So I'm glad that they're doing that here with Mega City 1, these hybrids. I'm really happy about that. The hybrids are freaky, dude. The art on this by Mooneyham is absolutely amazing. On these hybrids, let me tell you. And actually, there's a little more to it when they actually unleash them on Mega City 1. I don't want to spoil it, but there's there's a difference. You think it's one thing, and then all of a sudden you find out in the middle of the issue, oh, wait, they're not just doing this. They're also doing this to kick it up a whole nother level. And you also get to figure out just how crazy this Dr. Reinstadt really really is i mean you you kind of get the sense of that by what he's what he's done throughout the series but you really even towards the end and, and even people that you think are helping him and it's like nah he doesn't care about that he's just in it for himself and his vision it's the classic villains vision of the world type thing where you're when you're dealing with reinstadt and you know when it comes to villains like that they'll do almost anything to do what they need to do to accomplish that goal. And something happens with Dr. Reinstadt towards the end of this issue. And as a matter of fact, there's a big splash page of it. And it's like, holy shit, what did you just do? And there's also a lot of, a, a lot of great interaction towards the end as well between Judge Dredd and the Predators. There's, there's kind of an emotional scene towards the end, which you don't really expect and even a Judge Dredd or an Aliens or Predator type book that's really, really interesting. But the very, very end, I won't spoil it. It's so classic Dredd. They really give the spotlight to Dredd on the final page of this book. Because if you're a Judge Dredd fan and you've been reading this, you're going to get a classic Dredd ending that you really, really want. Because he just become, he just goes full Dredd for the final time on the final page of this book. So... I mean, as a Dread fan myself, well done, well freaking done by John Lehman throwing that spotlight in there. Because, you know, you're not going to get this warm, fuzzy ending from Judge Dread. No, no, no. Classic Dread all the way to the end. And the, the, the art through the series has been phenomenal throughout. I wish they could have got to the finale a little bit sooner. I, I know that they kind of delayed it a little bit and it, and it kind of stretched it out. But waiting for this and so glad. It, it, it felt like they needed to cram a little bit more in to the final issue than I wish that they could have, but it didn't really feel too rushed to me at the same time. I feel like they still got their point across. I think that we could have seen this bleed over into a fifth issue because I would like to seem to stretch the stretch the battle out a little bit more, but we get some nice action elements in here as well. So if you didn't get a chance to read this series from the beginning, when the trade comes out, definitely grab it. So this is a pull slash 
buy for me. If you haven't had a chance to get the back issues, go look for those as well. Because, I mean, this was such a great crossover series. Here's a question. Dr. Reinstein, he's on Tinder. He sees Dr. Poison. Does he swipe right? Ooh. I don't know. Because, I mean, I'm, those those evil doctors, man, I, I don't know what it is, but... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't think I don't think that, that she's freaky enough. I'm thinking he's swiping left. <laughs> I mean, this guy's... This guy's demented. She makes him wear a gas mask while they do it. I mean, I, I think he'd have to. I think he'd be more lucky on Tinder on the di- island of Doctor Moreau. Quite frankly, <laughs> oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> that's well, hey, read the comic, man. I'll tell you. <laughs> Just you read it and you tell me. Because <laughs> we don't oh. read each other. What you guys don't know is we don't read each other's books before we review them. Yeah. So when you read it. You'll understand. <laughs> In closing, Dr. Reinstadt's a furry. <laughs> well, you know, I mentioned Dr. Poison. Of course, she's part of the Wonder Woman mythos. And a book that I decided to do, you know, James, you talked about the annual last week. We're going to be talking about the movie coming up in a little bit. But DC has come out with a one-shot, a Wonder Woman Steve Trevor one-shot. And it's written by Tim Seeley, of course, Famous for doing Nightwing series, and it's been an amazing series so far. Uh, Christian Duche is the artist on this. Alan Pesalacqua is the colorist. And Josh Reed does the letters. Now, I will say this. Starting with the title, Wonder Woman Steve Trevor. Going into it, you think it's going to be them going on some sort of adventure or mission together. This is all about Steve Trevor. Ooh, interesting. Wonder Woman you see in the beginning and then at the end. And that's not spoiling anything. I just, that's, that's, hey, if you're going to read this book, you better off going and knowing that it's going to be all about Steve Trevor and, of course, his famous friends from the, from the films we saw, of course, in the comics, Samir, Charlie, and Chief. He joins up with them. Basically, the mission that they're on deals with a certain site. I'll just say that. And there's something mystical about this site. And basically, it's kind of like a mission where – they're going kind of like under the Argus name, if you will, but kind of not. It's it's kind of like uh, when they find out what this thing is, it's kind of like do we tell Argus? Do we not? What do we do? And so it's gonna be it's kind of a real interesting thing. I will say this though: the thing about this book, and again, I think a big part of it was because you see Wonder Woman, Steve Trevor, you think it's gonna be a certain thing, and ends up being a totally different thing. I'm not saying that the dialogue between the guys was boring, but it really made me miss Wonder Woman. And you really see how important she is to that whole team dynamic. And to me, this came off as more of just a regular mission, army, black ops kind of a book. And it didn't really feel Wonder Woman. I know you had Steve Trevor and you had the guys in there, but again... I really wanted some more Wonder Woman. I kind of wish she tagged along in this because I thought it would have been more interesting. And I understand that the point of this is more likely to show the side of Steve Trevor without Diana and how he goes on his missions and how he does his thing. But again, coming off of a movie where you see Diana and how important she is to that team dynamic and then she's not in this until the beginning and the end and those scenes are only with Steve where you're like, Ah, man, there's just something that was missing there because it just felt, the dialogue just felt kind of bland, really. And I will say this, the scenes that she's in, beginning especially, are very funny. Like, it's like, I was laughing with some of the things she was saying. Like, it, it was fun because that banter between them was just great. So I'm like, man, I really wish this was a book 
where they those two went on like a mission for Argus or whomever, and they had that kind of banter throughout. Even if it was just those two, because I just felt like there was just a certain direction they should have went in with this. That's very interesting because, I mean, I've read, obviously, Steve Trevor-led books before. They've had Argus books before that I've read. And and he can he's certainly shown that he can carry a book. And like you said, his cast of characters certainly would seem like they'd be interesting. So, And especially with their dynamic in the movie, the timing of this release seems a little bit interesting if it's slanted more towards Steve Trevor. And it's not to say that people don't want more Steve Trevor. And we'll talk about that as we get into the movie. But it... it to, to not take advantage of that dynamic and the release that they had right up against the Wonder Woman movie, I think is a little bit interesting. Yeah, and the art in this is really, really well. Uh, uh, Christian Duche is a really, really good artist. The scenes of just Diana flying, fighting this beast in the beginning, just the way that her armor sways is really good. And, and it's just really, really detailed. The colors are done really, really well on this. Uh, so, I mean, it's just, it's just the thing. It's a beautiful book. It's just that, I mean, it's not a bad book. It's just that if you want a book about Steve Trevor and the guys, then go ahead. Uh, it's just one of those things where, again, when you have one woman in the title, that makes it misleading, and it kind of takes, the, in a sense, joy out of it because you're like, oh, I'm going to read this book about Diana and Steve Trevor, and then you read, you know, get to page seven to eight when it's just him, and you're like, where's Diana? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you miss that. I see what you're saying. So, I mean, if it was, like, Steve Trevor and the guys, or if it was just, like, Steve Trevor one-shot or whatever, then, yeah, that'd be great. And you can have Diana as more of a supportive character or just the character that appears in the beginning and the end. But overall, uh, I can't put this as a drop because it wasn't, again, it wasn't terrible. It was just one of those things where I was a little bit let down because it didn't have that, that dynamic I was looking for. This is a pickup for me. All right, so, I mean, if you, if you like... You know, the banter between Steve and the guys, maybe you grab it. If you're looking for more more Diana, maybe not. Maybe not. Exactly. That's, that's all I'll say. If you want a book that's also beautiful as well, then then get it. And remember, this is a one-shot. So, I mean, you you know, it's not – there's a question, of course, that ends with a question mark. And so we don't know what's going to happen going forward. But overall, I was going to say that the person that's the villain in this issue, um, kind of okay, but more or less really forgettable. Mm, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. But coming up next, as I mentioned, we're going to be diving into the world of World War One and Themysciras. We're going to be reviewing Wonder Woman. Finally, 70-plus years, and she's finally made it to the big screen. We're going to be talking everything Wonder Woman, spoiler-filled, of course, and that's coming your way next. Hey, this is Matt Hawkins. I'm a uh, writer primarily, but also the president of Top Cow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, you heard us put the spotlight on her last week. This week, we're going to be doing our spoiler-filled review of the Wonder Woman movie, which I feel like I've been waiting for my entire life. And Nick, we got a huge, huge success from it. $100-plus million domestic, over $200 million at the worldwide box office. Wonder Woman and Gal Gadot, huge hit. You want to talk? We talked about last week how important this film was for a lot of people. I talked about you know what I saw leaving the theater, but I really want to talk about real quick about you know you took your wife to see this. So what was her reaction? What was your reaction going you know coming going in and coming out of the film? My reaction was, I don't think I've ever seen a more true adaptation of a character ever, like yeah. a character that we have known. From the comics, and that's not to put down any other movie at all. Now, it's not putting them down. I'm just saying you take a character and completely capture 
the essence of not just Wonder Woman, but of Diana Prince as well. You, you, she captured it all. Patty Jenkins did. Gal Gadot did. They, they captured the complete 100% essence of what Wonder Woman actually is. And that struck me throughout the entire movie. And my wife just thinks that Gal Gadot's a badass anyway. And <laughs> this movie just kind of confirmed that 100%. But it was, you know, it was about some of the supporting characters too, like, like Chris Pine, Steve Trevor, and, and the guys. That uh, that they that they were running with it was just a really cool dynamic for her too. So the whole thing, she wanted more Themyscira, and, and I can't blame her for that. She, I mean, I think if the whole movie was set in Themyscira, she would not have been upset about that because <laughs> I mean, just how visually beautiful and gorgeous it was, and the story that they were telling there. I mean, how could you not want more? But this can't be a six-hour movie, so what are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I mean, and here's the thing: like I said it was an important movie for a variety of reasons. What I loved about this movie, not only just the way that Paige Jenkins just pieced it all together in terms of directing, and how Gal Gadot brought Diana to life and Wonder Woman to life, I love that there are certain things that they weren't afraid to shy away from. For example, World War One. It is, I'd say, outside of the Civil War, probably one of the most bloodiest, worst, her, most horrific wars ever. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 quote, it's the war that end all wars. And I liked how you, even though, of course, it was PG-13, you made a P, they made a, get this, man, this is hard to do. They made a PG-13 World War One movie work. Yep, and it was a hard PG-13 at times. Right, because and what I liked it was there were certain times where they're walking in a battlefield, and you're seeing soldiers who are wounded, and you get that real that I- idea of what's going on, just the weight of it. And then you mentioned the, the surrounding characters. What I liked is there were certain, you know, they talked about struggles. This was a movie about struggles. They talked about the chief and how there's, they're going to sit around the campfire, and Diane talks about, you know, who took your land, he points to Steve Trevor, he's like, his people did. And then... Samir, he's talking about, you know, and he had a great piece of dialogue with Diana where he's talking about everybody has a battle that they're fighting, even if it's not as a soldier. Mm-hmm. And I love that because in that era, even today, there are people who have those types of battles. And I love that they did not shy away from those things. So it was really important, I felt, and it was really, really well done. And just overall, I, I cried three times in this because that no man's land scene, dude. Oh. Every bullet that deflected off of her, every time she used her shield, you felt the weight. You felt that 70-plus years of waiting. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's like, you're finally, like your eyes are finally seeing what your brain and your mouth has always wanted in terms of just, I want a Wonder Woman movie that's done well. And my God, man, you just, and with the music, you just feel that weight of World War One, that weight of Diana, with the whole feeling she has a weight on her shoulders. And something you said, how Gal Gadot brought Diana to life. I mean, very humanistic. Just, yep. you know, she's a badass, but she's not afraid. And what I love this, she's not afraid to go, oh, a baby, or freak out over ice cream. Like, you no, know, it was great. Like, those are hilarious scenes. Right. And I loved how early on they made it to where they're like, oh, she's very smart. She's not just an Amazonian warrior. They're not just Amazons, people who fight Ares and, and shit like that. No, they know over 100 languages, mm-hmm. and it was just great. I loved it, man. But the, and what was very unique that they did was that, you know, her naivety of the quote-unquote real world, right? Right. But but that, that comes off as dumb in so many movies, but they found a way somehow to still make it smart 
and not only smart but meaningful as they went throughout because you know she doesn't understand that this these are the wars of man and this is how things operate and she's not okay with that she doesn't understand certain things about the cultures you know and the dresses and how do women fight in this kind of thing and stuff like that there were a lot of laughs there there were things she didn't understand but it wasn't in a way that made her seem uneducated it was in a way that made her like well why isn't this this way and why aren't we doing it like this so the the naivety was in a smart way and it and it completely 100 percent mattered all the way through to the end of the movie too they made her curious and as not so much naive that's what i loved is, is that she knew what kissing was she knew what relations were between people you know when it had this the boat this the boat scene for when they were talking about it, she's like you know we found out you know i find i read all the books and i found out that you know when it comes to pleasure men are not needed they're just needed for for you know procreating that and was that funny. was funny as hell you know so she was smart as you mentioned you know she's like how do women fight in this or this is what you call armor it's like armor no this is fashion you know in terms of added candy so it was like yeah it was some naivety but it was more it came off more as just curious you know and and i love that and it's just that innocence that we had you know and god damn just the fighting and and you know she did six months of training for all this whole this movie and it was just it really showed and that's why i like too is that when you saw the amazons i know your wife loved them in skira I love that all the Amazons looked like they could kick somebody's ass. Oh, like, yeah. Like, you know, like they had that face on them. Like, like you don't want to fuck with them, you know. And I like they had different builds as well. And I just want to say, when the Germans invaded Themyscira, like, you got this. I love – one thing I love is I love the uh, the the differentiating uh, between different fighting styles in terms of guns and, and bows and stuff like that and how one would match up against the other if they were to ever meet. I got that and I love that you know like you're seeing yeah these Germans have guns but you're seeing these women just ride these horses and shoot mm-hmm. arrows being launched in the air and throwing daggers and it and it's one of those things where I was talking to a friend of mine you know who saw the movie and I'm like and he's talking about oh you know you get they got guns so it's unfair I'm like hey you can pick up a anybody can pick up a bow and be as effective it's all it's not the weapon that makes the person it's right who has the weapon that makes the person such a badass and so dangerous as we've and seen i'll tell you what that's how you get off a horse You're damn right i mean I, I don't think i'd try it in a million years but that's how that's how you dismount let me tell you that right now i'm, I'm looking at that i'm going what she she just backflipped threw a sword and shot an arrow all while falling off a horse clearly i've been doing it wrong my entire life but, but can I just say that of all the superhero movies I've seen, this has probably had the strongest supporting cast of oh, all so, of them. I mean, yeah. Robin Wright as Antiope was amazing. Yeah. You know, and, and Connie Nielsen as Apollo was great. And you mentioned the guys, you know, uh, Say Tamugi as Samir and Ewan Bremner as Charlie and Eugene Brave Rock as Chief. Like, they all work together and you felt that that beautifulness of, of togetherness and that team effort, you know, that I felt was missing in the comic that I reviewed a little bit ago. And let's get to the villains. Of course, Ares, I will say this, the best third act fight. I'll say, you know, it's not a video game, but I'm just going to use the term just because the best boss fight in any movie I've seen since the Marvel Cinematic Universe started. I will say this, nice twist too, by the way. I I didn't necessarily think it was the general, but at the same time... That was a nice, nice twist that they had with Sir Patrick there at the end. Ended up being Ares. That was a nice, nice twist. And yeah, just the the sheer volume of the fight was just absolutely epic. And how his 
suit kind of forms bit by bit with pieces just flying from around. And you actually do get the sense that, you know, this, you know, it's not going to be it for Wonder Woman, but you kind of get the sense that she might not be able to handle it at first. But then it's, it's like she hulks out and she flips that switch. And then all of a sudden she's like, no, no, this is not happening. Not here, not now. And she just takes him down and that scene between her and Steve Trevor right when he's getting ready to take off to right during the fight and how you regroup from something like that in the moment unbelievable man and that's another scene where I cried at where he of course flies off and the plane blows up and she just goes through all those soldiers boom 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 punch Mm -hmm. you know going through them all mowing them down what I loved about Patty Jenkins' direction is she knew when to make Diana badass in scenes and really when to add that emotional element in making her a badass. And that's what I loved is that you had that beautiful balance. And that fight with Ares, you felt the – again, you felt the weight of it. A lot of these fights, you feel just the weight of what's going on because, again, that scene with Ares and she's just throwing down and yeah. – and it's just one of those things where he's talking about, you know, they don't deserve to live and, and they don't – she's like, it's not about what, you know, you desire. It's, it's just, you know, about doing what's right and stuff like that and, and, and I choose love. And that's the thing is that Diana and, and the whole trinity of, of DC, Diana is the heart. She is the light. You know, I, I know we talked about a little while ago, weeks, months ago, of like, oh, Superman should be that light. No, Diana should be that light. Because it shows what happens, man. And again, with that, her being a little bit naive and saying, "I killed Ares. Why isn't the you know the war over?" Right. And then she sees, hey, and then she realizes going f- at the end, the deeper you dive into the world of man, the more darker you see how it is and how deep the darkness really goes. Because remember, some people have talked about, well, wait a minute, she kills Ares, so why? So there should be no more wars. So why does World War II happen? Well, remember. Ares says, I'm not the god of war, I'm the god of truth. He says, I did not cause World War One. I. I only gave them ideas as to how to extend it. Right. And in that, the and, and really it's it's man makes the wars. And and really it's, remember how he even said in the beginning when Hippolyta was telling a young Diana the story of, hey, he, he Ares poison the heart of man and then they they started fighting each other. He wasn't, like, oh, he wasn't like, I'm just going to have a war today and boom. Here's the deal. The opening monologue completely 100% explains the third act. Oh, yeah. When she talks about, this is the lesson I learned all those years ago. And then you play the harp music and back we go to World War One. That opening monologue explains why, okay, that day I learned exactly the way things go on in man's world. I learned that just because you stop one person doesn't mean you stop all of evil there's more evil out there and i have to choose the side like you said the side of love you have to choose that side and the way that she just kind of learned throughout the entire movie i think was was very telling and that was one of the things i loved about it the most and i want to talk about the balance that you were talking about early on how she knew when to be a badass and knew when to kind of soften her up and I, you brought up the scene with the ice cream i also want to bring up the scene where they're getting ready to make that that push into the into the where the where the ball is, and Charlie had his PTSD moment. Oh yeah, and he, he couldn't take the shot, and he's like, "No, I don't want to go on." And then she just says, "But Charlie, who will sing for us?" And I'm like, "See, 
right yeah. there. That's right there. why Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot they get it. That's how, that shows me right there that they get it because it's not always about the fight. What what did Liam Sharp tell us? It's not always about the fight with Diana. It's if anything, fighting is the secondary thing about her character and the soul right. of who she actually is, and they understood that completely. It, it's her being inclusive, and I think that that scene where she talks about, well, Charlie, who would sing for us, really – I mean, if you didn't care about the, the group before, that really makes you care about the surrounding characters around the guys that they're on this mission with. And I loved that, you know, and I love that she had those moments of badasses that weren't physical where, the, you know, they're deciphering the message and the theories in Dr. Poison's journal, and she's like – Oh, this is this this is this and this, and the guy goes, "Oh, a woman knowing you know what these are," and she shuts him the fuck down. And then she has that badass moment of real generals are in the battlefield with dying with yeah. their men, not sitting behind desks. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, that is Breakfast Club pump fist and air moment. That is like, fuck yeah, Diana, you go. <laughs> that was unbelievable, and the fact that she wouldn't be forced out of the room. She wouldn't be right. pushed out of the way. And every time they said, Oh, you're going with us. Okay. And she was like, yeah, yeah, well, we'll, it's like a, yeah, yeah, we'll see. You'll understand what I'm all about. Once oh, yeah. we get out there, she didn't, she didn't take no for an answer, but she also in a way proved herself at every turn without even feeling like she had to right. She just did it. She just did it because this was the normal for her. This is what she knew. And this is what she thought was right to do so she it's, just did it it's kind of like playing a game of horse and somebody does a trick shot and you're like yeah you do that and they go okay and they just do it you know what i'm saying right, like exactly it, it's it's one of, and it's what it was i love that about her and just want to say the cinematography in this was amazing and one thing that's important in a lot of films especially when you have a lot of fight sequences is you don't want a lot of close-up shots. You want to be able to see what is going on, and they showed you what's going on. You see every punch being landed. You see her sliding across the Mm -hmm. floor. You see all this stuff. And that's important because you get that idea and just that, oh, this is some serious shit is going down, man. And it it was great. Like it It was awesome. I liked also going back to No Man's Land when she talks about, you know, this this is what I'm going to do. And part when she put the headpiece on, it really felt like at that moment she also felt like she had a duty not just to the the people who were, you know, in that village, but also to her fellow Amazonians as well. Well, that, that's Diana. And I think that's, yeah. uh, that's, again, another example of her capturing that. And for me, when – you were talking about feeling the weight lifting off. For me, it wasn't when she was deflecting the bullets. It was when she's, she's almost to the front lines. And she kneels down with the shield. Oh, yeah. And she's just taking Taking shot after shot after shot after shot. And then she just finds a way to push forward and eventually jumps in the bunker and just starts taking dudes out. To me, that was the, here's where we push through and here's where I make my name for myself. And you want to talk about her being the light. All of a sudden, it looks smart to have her... And Bruce Wayne, Batman, as the ones forming the Justice League going forward, if anybody is the light in the dark in the Justice League in this cinematic universe now, it is Wonder Woman and Batman, and it seems like they all of a sudden 
are absolutely 100% at the top, way above everybody else. That's what I want to talk to you, because, of course, the next film we're going to be going into is Justice League. Of course, it's directed by Zack Snyder. So coming from Wonder Woman, how do you feel going into Justice League, knowing that it's directed by Zack Snyder, again, knowing all the backlash Batman vs. Superman got? when it was released with all due respect to Zack Snyder and everything that he's going through right now. And our, our, you know, thoughts go out to him and his family for all the stuff that, that he's dealing with personally. Um, it's Zack Snyder and yeah. you, you just don't know. And, and you know, I guess the biggest question and all that, that, that we can't possibly answer even by trailers is how much did you learn from that experience? And are, and are you willing to kind of swallow your pride a little bit and know that you had to, do things a little differently because I know people hated Suicide Squad and we didn't. But now for us personally, or at least for me personally, we've seen two examples of how it's been done better now Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how characters have been a little bit more truly adapted, especially in Wonder Woman. So how do you not only take that momentum and run with it, but how much have you learned from what you experienced in this last year and a half, two years? What I'm afraid of, and I know Zack Snyder was one of the writers on Wonder Woman, but what I'm afraid of is that some of the goodwill that they got from Wonder Woman is going to be stripped away in Justice League. And I'm, I'm afraid because, again, it is a Zack Snyder film. So I'm afraid that it's going to be going back to that before Suicide Squad era. I hope it's not the case. I know that you know Jeff Johns is now the head of the whole DCEU, so maybe he's helping Zack and them steer it in the better direction. We'll see. And here's the thing. If they can make Justice League work, then okay, clear sailing. Here's the deal. I obviously, as, as somebody who's, who grew up a DC fan, want all these movies to be great. So, And I hope that all of them are great. I think as long – I don't think we can really measure Justice League against Wonder Woman because – it, that that's going to be difficult because you you basically let Patty Jenkins do whatever she wanted to do and that was the absolute 100% right decision and now you've got Zack Snyder who's getting the next bite at the apple so I, I think that I don't know how it could possibly measure up to what Patty coming off of what Patty Jenkins what, once did so for me as long as Justice League takes a step in the right direction and doesn't go backwards from what we've already experienced. I don't expect it to be perfect, but as long as it gives us a step in the right direction and it give me one more character that looks like they're going to really work. Like like if like if Jason Momoa's Aquaman is really good, give me that to look forward to for the Aquaman movie going forward because even if the movie's bad, I know the next Wonder Woman movie is going to be good regardless. So and I'm I'm fairly confident that whenever they get the Batman off the ground, that that one's going to be good. But give me one more to look forward to. If The Flash ever finds a director, you know, Aquaman going forward, how that's going to be. If they decide to throw Green Lantern in there at some point and not tell us, you know, give me something else to look forward to beyond a Wonder Woman movie. I think that's what Justice League needs to accomplish. Yeah, man. So with that, let's just go ahead and give our ratings. And I'll just, you know, I'm going to have you just continue, man. Go first. Give yours. I got to be honest, man. I, I said this before, and I'm not sure how much else I could say it. This is the truest adaptation of any character, Marvel or DC, 
that I think we've seen in a movie so far. I know there have been some good ones, but I mean, shattered the box office records, beat the first Iron Man movie, which was also really good and true adaptation. I thought Captain America did a good job, but there was just something about this that just felt so right from the beginning to the end. And, and you can't say that about a lot of superhero movies and comic book movies. You just can't say that. And it's not that they're, like I said, it's not that they're bad, but it's like, it's hard. It's, I don't think people appreciate how truly, truly hard it is. And this is why it's so hats off to everyone involved from Jeff Johns to Patty Jenkins on down the line about how they got this so right. It's hard from start to finish of a movie to not, A, not do a shot for shot of a certain story out of a comic or B, completely capture the essence of what everything this character stands for. And they absolutely 100% did that. You talked about the supporting cast was excellent. I'm, I know that this is all about Wonder Woman and all about, you know, the, the, how great this is for women everywhere, but I cannot let it get lost at how fantastically good Chris Pine was as Steve Trevor. He was absolutely great. This movie had just enough humor, plenty of action, nothing at all felt forced. It just felt like perfection from start to finish. I know that people have been trying to poke holes in this movie at certain places, but for me, this is everything I wanted to be and more, and I'm going to do something on this show we have never done before. Okay. I'm going to take a stand right now. I 100% refuse to give this a number. I cannot do it. I will not give this a number because I don't feel like I, I don't. I couldn't possibly pick a number. It's not one. I can tell you that right now. I'm doing this because I. I just. I can't wrap my head around how you do it better than this. So right. I'm just. I'm not giving it a number. Not doing it. Take that for what you will. Well, I'll say this. It's great to see color and the sun in a DC movie. Yeah, that's nice, right? Welcome to the universe. Making a little bit of nice appearance. weather there. Speaking of debuts, but, you know, I mean, you want to talk about the numbers, let's talk about the numbers real quick. So, of course, you know, made over $100 million opening weekend, beat the debut record set by Iron Man and Thor, and it's just amazing, amazing job. And also Doctor Strange beat as well. Again, I cannot talk enough about just how amazing this movie was. The direction was amazing. The the fact that they set made a world war again. I can't get my head over the fact that you make a successful World War One movie PG thirteen. That's that's the to me just by any director's standards that's an impossible feat because of the stuff you have to cover in it. Gal Gadot, she is Wonder Woman. Like you have Linda Carter and Gal Gadot, and they're right there. And and and. She, going forward, I am 100% behind her. I think she's going to be doing an amazing job no matter what movie she's in for the DCEU going forward. The cinematography, again, was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It had some of that slow-mo that Snyder was known for, but you also had that some nice, fast-paced action in there. This film made me cry. And I know I cry a lot in movies lately, but really, when you just know all the weight behind this, when you see the scenes and how they're just... Done, and that's why a lot of reasons why I cried as well, just because of how well executed they were. I'm like, oh my god, this is making me cry. Oh my god, I'm crying again. And something that I hope that they don't do going forward. There are two things I hope they don't do. The first is, well, Steve Trevor, for what we know, was in the plane when it exploded. I don't want him to come back. I know Steve Trevor is important in Wonder Woman's mythos, but here's the thing: him dying 
I felt made the ending a lot more impactful because while you see everybody in England celebrating the war is over, Diana and the group walk with this kind of sorrow look on their faces of, yes, the war is over, but we all lost something, especially Diana, who lost someone that she truly loved. She lost two people she loved to the war. She lost Antiope to the war, and she also lost Steve Trevor, two people she loved dearly. And I think that him being dead and staying dead is going to carry that weight with her forever. It's going to be kind of like with Batman and his parents dying. It's going to be like Spider-Man's Uncle Ben. It's going to carry with her, and it's going to add that weight to her. I know I believe Chris Pine signed for a few more you know, movies, but I hope those are more flashbacks or whatever i don't want because you know i think that also the fact that it's just i don't think that bringing steve back would work in a certain sense but we'll see what happens also i'm just i hope that something that does not happen going forward is i don't want every one movie to be uh kind of characterized or set within a certain war i want i would love to see you know we got to look at wonder woman in the past like now i want to see wonder woman in the future in the present how does she act how does she react? What's going on? I'd love to see Barbara and Minerva be, you know, Cheetah be introduced in the next film. And I want to see how that goes. Because you've read the Greg Rucker run lately. You know how important their bond is, how big their bond is, and how much of a role Cheetah plays in Wonder Woman getting back to Themyscira. So going forward, I hope that they do that. Again, as you said, and I, I can't put a number on this because it's just too – such an impactful movie, such an important movie for a variety of reasons – and this is by all means. I think you talk about setting the bar for the DCEU movies going forward. This sets the bar, I think, for all comic book-based superhero movies going forward. This sets the bar. Not only do you have a strong main character, you also have characters that you care about that surround this, the main character, and you and you just make a wonderful story. If I had to give a number on it, I would have said probably like 20 out of 10 times women said it's about goddamn time but (laughs) but as you said man i you can't put a number on this this is too good by the time this show goes up i've probably already seen the movie three to four times in theaters it's that fucking good you know so i mean it's just amazing it's 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 really amazing it's it's just a, a triumphant moment for a lot of people for everybody for you know and and you know women especially I, I'm excited. Bravo to Pay Jenkins and bravo to Gal Gadot. I'm going to say one more thing before we move on. Good luck, Spider-Man. Oh, oh, dude, exactly, man. No, no, here's the thing I'm interested in. Now that Marvel has seen Wonder Woman be this successful and tell a story with a lead female character this way, what do you think they're thinking about with Captain Marvel? I think they're thinking that... Uh... We better make her really strong. And she is not as strong as Wonder Woman, but she's the strongest female character. And I've said this on the show many times. You can go back. Captain Marvel's the strongest female character as far as presence that Marvel has. Now there's even more pressure to get that one right. If anything, Marvel has a board to look at with Wonder Woman saying, okay, we don't want to, of course, make it shot for shot, but here's some elements we need to pull from Wonder Woman into Captain Marvel to make this as successful if not more because you know it's gonna make a lot of money but again it comes down to that storytelling and can they get away from that marvel formula that's all you know that's the big thing and they're very different characters too so it'll be exactly how they handle that and that's gonna do it for our spoiler filled review of wonder woman and coming up next we have nerd news coming your way stay tuned 
This is Artist Ficocio, Artist of Revolutionaries, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, it's time to dive back into those panels of comics that we read during the week, because it's time for what? Nerd News! And this week, it's all comic book-based news, because starting off with... A book that came out this week that's getting a lot of attention for a certain reason. Of course, it centers around our boy Tom King's Batman run. Yeah, and again, we want to give you a spoiler alert if you have not read Batman 24 yet. This is a huge, huge spoiler from that issue because we believe in not spoiling things before you actually read them. So there's your warning. But Bruce Wayne, Batman himself, has proposed to Selina Kyle slash Catwoman in what I think is one of the most ballsy moves in Batman comics ever. And it's very ballsy because, again, this is a relationship that has been historic in comics, especially, of course, in the Batman mythos and the Batman runs throughout the years. And it takes a wonderful and great writer like Tom King to, I think, finally say, you know what? I'm going to cross that line. I'm going to press that button and make this thing possibly happen because we have not seen her response to it. We've seen him propose to her, but we have not seen her initial acceptance of it. So going forward, what does that mean? We don't know. But what I love is just, as you said, it's a ballsy move. And I love that finally, it's 2017, we finally have this type of situation. Remember, I want to go back to the button because remember when you're talking to his dad, his dad pretty much says like, you know, live your life. Don't, you know, kind of put the whole Batman thing aside. Have a family. And it's great to kind of see that happen. It's also great to have an interaction like that, even though it's his dad from a different Earth. It's great to have him have that kind of talk and that, that discussion with his dad or his dad relay that kind of message and then see how he carries that out in his own world. And I thought it was very fitting that it was Gotham Girl that he was talking to at the time. So that goes all the way back to the beginning of Batman Rebirth in the first place. So you take it all the way back to the beginning almost with the character that we saw in the first few issues of the run. And that makes you think Rebirth once again. So it's almost like Bruce Wayne's decided that he's going to almost start his life over and you know there's been the whole does he want to be batman anymore kind of thing and that's been sparked by tom and i think that's also very risky but very brilliant writing that he's brought out and i just i just love how the callback and it's it's not all just cut and dry right in front of your face it makes you think all the way back to the past issues i just love how he does that and all you know the speculation's already starting and you hit the nail right on the head it's not like she said yes or anything yet but we're also getting the speculation of okay is this really going to happen is she going to die now but think about it no matter what tom does here he wins because if they get married it's historic if selena kyle catwoman dies it's historic no matter what way this story goes it's going to make history it's brilliant well, you know what this does? I want to go back to last year when we were at Taiwan ComCon. We were talking to Jerry Conway. And you know, I pointed out that on his banner that he uses for cons, it says, the man who killed Gwen Stacy. Tom is now forever the man of the man who either married Catwoman and Bruce Wayne or the man who either had Batman propose to her and she died. Either way, as you mentioned, 
This is going to stick with him forever for good reasons because a lot of the stories that have been on websites of other nerd news sites have been centered around us. So real quick, I just want to say this. To those sites, when you're writing a story that has a big spoiler like this at the end of the book, don't put it in the fucking headline. <laughs> yeah, and certainly not before the book even comes out. Yeah. That was just, that was not cool for me. So I I will jump on that train with you. Not cool at all because we try and be very respectful of spoilers and stuff like that. We don't want you, our listeners, to, to hear about this stuff before you read it. We give you plenty of warning, even like when we review shows, movies, stuff like that. Hey, if you haven't seen this, read this, heard this, you know, skip ahead a little bit because we do not want to spoil this for you. So I thought that was a dick move. I think, yeah, it was. And and here's the thing that I love just about this, to wrap it up in a nice little bow, is I love that, as you mentioned with Gotham Girl in the beginning, because we also had kind of her doubts as well, of like, well, I don't know if I want to be a superhero because, you know, her brother's dead and stuff like stuff with her has happened. So she's kind of like, man, I don't know if I want this. And then, of course, Bruce Wayne. There's kind of a hint of if Batman is gone, Gotham Girl more than likely will possibly take over as kind of Gotham's protector because he mentions like people who are possibly going to be training her and stuff. So it's like a new chapter in where Bruce Wayne, Batman can go. Now, do I think that he's going to be Mr. Family Man his whole life? Is he going to be put up the cowl? Of course not. I think there's going to be something that brings him back. Who knows? Maybe it will be Selena's death because he'll be like, just when I want to get out, you know, kind of with the whole mafia thing. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. So it's kind of like, just when I think I put the cowl back on the hook, they put me, they pull me back in. Gotham's crime pulls me back in. And think about what you just said. If it goes to Gotham Girl and she'd be Gotham's protector, how's that going to go over to Batwoman, Batgirl, Nightwing, whoever Robin is going to be at this particular time? Spoiler, all these other protectors of Gotham who are going to go, hey, uh, hello? We've been here for a while, so that could cause friction there, too. So, again, all these things that we're discussing that haven't even happened yet are all possibilities to Tom King wins, no matter what. Right, and even and, and even with those things, there might not be that kind of like, hey, what's going on here? Because Nightwing's in Bloodhaven. This is a smart thing. DC's done with Rebirth. Night, they're all – all these superheroes, especially in the Bat family, are all, for the most part, in different cities. So it's kind of like – Oh yeah, I can't watch Gotham because I'm in Bloodhaven and it's on fire right now, so I kind of can't go back to that city called Gotham. Right, but think about it. Even though like Damien's in Jump City with the Titans, don't think he wouldn't race back right. to Gotham to want to be Gotham's protector. You think Damien is just gonna let Gotham Girl take over? No way. Yeah, well, we have to see, of course, what happens in future issues of Batman. But staying with the whole DC Rebirth series and the whole initiative. You know, it turns to the Man of Steel. We went from Batman, the Dark Knights, go to his counterpart, the Man of Steel, because, of course, Peter J. Tomasi has done an amazing job with Superman. I will say this, as we mentioned when the first issue was released way back when, and how he made Superman interesting. He was the first writer in a long time to do that. And now it is word that he might be, we don't know the, the length of it, but it looks like they're switching over the whole creative team in terms of Superman. Yeah, if you've been paying attention to Twitter lately, Michael Morrissey is saying that he is taking over writing duties for Superman starting with issue 26. Now, I mean, if you scroll down a little bit where he's, you know, taking congratulations and stuff like that, and rightfully so, it actually he's actually saying that it's just issue 26 
for now. So we don't know how long this is going to be, how short this is going to be. Also, we've got Scott Godlewski, who's going to be doing the art for that as well. And they posted art from up there. It looks phenomenal. And actually can't wait to see what uh, Godlewski does with this book. But before we dive into what this means and, and what we hope for this going forward, can I just say that even though I'm upset about you know, we're, we're seeing Seely leave Nightwing and we're seeing now Tomasi leaving Superman and so on and so forth. Can I just say that even though I loved their runs, I like that DC's shaking things up a little bit. They're not just leaving everybody on the same runs forever. You know, Tomasi's had a good 25 issue run, run. Rucka and company have had that same kind of run on Wonder Woman. And then DC's like, okay, you know, let's, let's take things a little bit of a different direction. Let's get a new creative team in here, a new perspective to keep things fresh. Well, I'm looking at this article right now that has the next four issues of Superman. And again, uh, more, more season we taken over issue 26, but from 27 on down to 29, it's all Pierre J. Tomasi. Of course, issue 29, it's going to be him, Patrick Gleason, and Keith Champagne. And 28, it's going to be him and Patrick Gleason. Same thing with 27. So it's going to be, again, interesting to see how much of a run Peter has left when it comes to Superman. But either way, I, I will say this. We talk about with the Marvel books all the time of, you know, we want some new creative teams. We want you to switch it up a little bit. What DC is, start, is really showing in this whole Rebirth initiative, again, as you mentioned with uh, Shea taking over for Wonder Woman and Rucka leaving and stuff like that, it shows when that DC knows when to properly change in and swap out creative teams and when is the right time to do it. And it's, the great thing is, is you're not giving – you're not saying, like, okay, you're doing 10 bucks and that's it. It's like, no, you're giving them 20-plus bucks mm-hmm. to do their thing and really tell – these huge, vast arcs and everything that they've done in this whole run of Superman with, with you know, their son and just, you know, why is it that he can, you know, fly or just jump a little bit, but yet he can't take a fall from a tree, you know? So it's it's really cool just the things that they've done with him, of course, him and Damien and Super Sons, and the other, which is another fantastic series they've been doing over at DC. But yeah, it's really interesting to see what the, the transition is going to be like and when it's going to be like. Because I think that right now it's DC is showing, okay, let's get, maybe give them at least around, I'd say, 25 to 30 issues and then we'll see if we can ch- change it up. And again, it's all in just pitching and how the arc is going to end and how they can say, okay, this arc ends. Now how can we easily and, and, and smoothly transition this new team to this whole new arc? Right, exactly, and Shea also doing an issue of Justice League that I reviewed on our website this past week that uh, that you can read the review up there. Shea Fontana does an issue of Justice League, so that's a little breakup as well, and you don't know where that's going to lead, and maybe that's what what it is. It's DC dipping their toe in the water and saying, let's see what the response is to this, so in the future we can decide what we want to do sort of thing. So I think it's pretty smart, and whether it's one issue, two, or if they give them a small arc to do, I just like that they're switching things up a little bit to give us a different perspective every now and then. Yeah, James, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do going forward in terms of DC, but we know what they're going to be doing over at IDW in terms of their Hasbro universe, and they're also going to be switching some things up as well. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, it looks like with the first strike arc that's going to be coming up, they're ending... What seems like every arc they have, they're calling it like a seasonal shift. So, of course, you're going to see G.I. Joe. That run's going to end. Also, uh, Rom, that's going to end. 
and Mask. We already knew that that was ending. Micronauts had that Wrath of Karza. We knew that was going to end at five issues anyway because it was always going to be a five-issue run. But all of this is going to take place right around August when Margaret Scott and David A. Rodriguez, of course, with the art by Max Dunbar, start this first strike initiative, which is kind of like you were talking about earlier, the phase two of the revolution type thing starting in August. So, I mean, I guess my question to you is how do you feel about them ending these runs seemingly so quickly? Well, here, here's the thing is that, of course, the numbers of people wondering, well, when is ROM, this current ROM run going to end, and so on and so forth. Well, Mask, of course, were written by Brand Easton's ending at issue 10, G.I. Joe's ending at issue 9, and ROM is ending issue 14. And going back to the DC thing where I talked about how, you know, it's great to see them do these 20-plus issue things before switching over creative teams. I kind of wish that every book kind of got the same amount of, of issues before switching over people. I think that, you know, again, we'll see how mask ends and stuff like that coming soon. Cause it's seventh issue just went, was released last week. But my thing going forward is I'm kind of iffy on how they're switching it up. Cause you know, Aubrey Sirison's going from GI Joe. Now he's going to be doing the mask run for first strike. And my thing is that these, runs these current runs have been so damn good yeah i kind of like why would you switch it up a little bit you know i mean i understand you want to see people do different projects but it's like aubrey's been killing on gi joe which only he's been doing nine issues you know brandon has been killing on mass that gets 10 so you know and ron's been great as well so part of me is kind of like you know i kind of wish i understand that like ron was released earlier then that's why all these numbers are different but part of me just wishes that you know why couldn't these books just at least get a full 10 each or a full 15 each or 20 each? You know, and, I mean, I, I have full faith in IDW and see what they're going to be doing. Uh, but it's just kind of like, you know, and it's more of me being also OCD when it comes to numbers. Like, I like everything, like, ending at a certain number, certain whatever. But, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of weird. Like, I, like, they're shifting people around, but it's kind of like these stories have been great, and I kind of want to see more. I think that people like Brandon Easton – you know, and, and of course, Aubrey Sirison can take these characters and continue to work on these characters and not have to really switch things up, especially because John Barber, you're not, sw- they're not switching him bump, but the whole Optimus Prime thing. So it's kind of like, well, if you're not switching John, why are you switching these around? Right, and Margaret Scott was doing Transformers Lost Light, which is also going to be ending right around the same time as well. I mean, if you look at the first strike arc, you know some stuff's going to change because you've got Cobra invading Cybertron, and that's got implications not just for Cybertron but for Earth as well. So, I mean, I get that things are going to change, and I guess we will still see Aubrey on G.I. Joe after First Strike, or at least that seems to be the indication right now. But it seems like everybody else is getting new creative teams. And again, not necessarily a bad thing, like you said, but it's like, ah, I feel like we were just getting, we were getting a nice groove with Mask, and we were getting a nice groove with G.I. Joe. And, I mean, you can't hold off a big arc like this because we know it's, more than likely going to be amazing with the creative teams that are involved. But at the same time, I don't know if it's because we've enjoyed them so much or if it's because it seems like it's been so short or both that I guess the, it's not even really a complaint more as like a, Oh, I wish we could have had more kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, man, I I totally understand where you're coming from with this. And it's just one of those things where, again, it's going to be interesting to see how, Aubrey Wright's mask and stuff like that. But it's just one of those things, too, where it's like, I will say this. The one thing I do love about this whole phase thing, this whole plan that they have is, 
you know, when you read the interview that they did recently, and and, and I'm talking about IDW, and they're talking about like, well, this is we actually have this is a three year plan, so this is really really you know first strike is Act Two, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting because you know we heard about Revolution, what caught what we love is the whole yeah, it's you know invasion of body snatchers, and you have all this thing, of course, GI Joe getting killed off, and you have just these really interesting dynamics, you know, and Starscream working with people that you would never think in a million years he'd work with. So it's really interesting to see kind of like that that first wave be so successful and be such an awesome wave. And part of me is kind of like, and I think it's just, a, I think the, I don't want to say purist in me, but just kind of like, you know, you have these, 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 these teams for the most part start off with these characters, I would like to see them finish all these characters all the way through the third act. You know, make like a three-year mission with these. You know, see these people have this three-year run with the, with these characters they've been with at the beginning. If you want to change up the whole main thing with First Strike, then that's that's fine. That's that's fi- fine by me. But I think when it comes to the individual stuff, I would wish that it would stay in the hands of the people who were doing such a marvelous job with them for just a while. You know, a while longer. Yeah, and we all, we said, you know, we loved what was going on, but where's Cobra? Well, now we know where Cobra is because Cobra's going to be part of the Phase 2. And, of course, Comic Book Resources broke all this information uh, this week in their their exclusive. But I got to tell you, man, just the way that things are going. And and it's not a knock on any of these creative teams at all because they're all, everybody involved in these projects, it's amazing from top to bottom. So it's not even like we're worried because you're going from a great creative team to, and you're taking a step down. That's not what's happening at all. These are all great creative teams, but you know, you fall in love with something and then you feel like it gets yanked away from you a little bit too quickly. Right. I think that that's part of it. So, so I think that what I'm saying is my excitement is, is obviously still there. And I, and I think that this is going to be a great story, but at the same time, yeah, I wished, I so wished we could have gotten at least 10 issues from all of these. And I know that, you know, we're going to get to 10 with some Rom had over 10, so we're going to get some, but I, I hope we at least get some sort of finality out of it. You know what I mean? I, I totally hear you, man. But I mean, we're either way I'm excited about first strike and see how that all turns out. Cause I'm, I'm really, you know, IDW has been pumping out some amazing, amazing stuff. But like I said, it was just what worries me is just the the, the change up uh, of you know these people have been doing these characters for for a while and they've been doing such a great job with it. I think that you know while well, I did mention the whole yeah let's do fifteen issues or ten issues. Part is kind of like yeah do those fifteen ten, but keep them on <laughs> you know if right, you wrap exactly. up those arcs fine, but keep them on because they've been just kicking so much ass man. And that's going to do it with our discussion of this week's Nerd News. But coming up next, we'll be sitting down with one of the writers of a book I reviewed a couple weeks ago. And I know James loved as well. Shirtless Bear Fighter from Image Comics. We'll be sitting down with Joey Le Hoop, who is the co-writer of that book, coming up next. This is John Barber, writer of Optimus Prime. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I think it's safe to say when you see certain names on the front page of a comic, they just sort of stand out to you. And no more than Shirtless Bear Fighter from Image Comics. And we are just so happy to have one of the writers on the show with us this week. It's Jody LaHoop. Jody, how's it going, man? Going great, man. How are you guys? We're good. As a matter of fact, when this book was announced with several other books by Image at ECCC in March... This one really stood out to Nick and I the most. We couldn't, we just couldn't forget about it. So the first question is really simple for us: Where the hell did this idea come from? Yeah, that's you know that's one of the first things that uh, that people want to ask us about because it is such a striking 
uh, striking title. People were at, like out of the box. People were just kind of like, what? You know what I mean? Where did this come from? I've been waiting for this title my whole life. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so for sure, yeah, I mean... Okay, so a, a little bit of backstory. I'll try to make it quick for you. Uh, Sebastian and I were editing up at Marvel Comics for a long time. That's where we met in the X office there. And uh, and then I, I went over to Valiant. I was there for a little while. And Sebastian went on to shoot, edit a bunch of comics for, for Image, that sort of thing. So point being that, you know, we've been working in comics for a long time. We've been uh, working with other people's concepts for a long time. And while we're working on those books, we found that we had an enormous amount of creative energy. And so once we once we left our editorial positions, Sebastian stayed in, with Image and edited, continued to edit in that way. But then we both kind of wanted to work on writing projects. And once we got, got to the writing desk, it became a matter of, well, what are we going to work on? And so we were living together at the time, good friends, roommates. So like I said, we had all this creative energy that we were trying to, I guess pun intended, bring to bear on something. While we were living together, we used to always fire ideas at each other. We would constantly be pitching each other concepts, ideas. Uh, help to try to crack um, the other person's story problems or casting problems or issues they were having with the books they were working on. So we were always sort of living in this creative space where we were shooting ideas at each other. And then sort of quite by accident, uh, one of us, I can't remember which one at this point, um, referred to someone as looking like a shirtless bear fighter, like someone in like a movie we were watching or someone on the street or something. And so we weren't really even trying to create anything in the moment. But as soon as those words came out of our mouth, it was like a, it was like being struck by you know, comics lightning. Like it was, it was just a moment of like, hey, he looked at me and I looked at him, and we were just kind of like, oh my god, um, that is a hundred percent the comic book that we are about to co-create and co-write together. So um, that's really where the idea came from. Um, it was just a thing that one of us said and we recognized as a killer idea that we could build something out of. And um, <clears throat> as soon as we start to unpack it, you know, sort of, I like to use the term excavate, you know, because once you start digging into it, it's like it was always there and we just found it. You know, you sort of, you, the, the, the character himself, like, you know, makes himself very known, sort of like punches his way out of, uh, out of our brains and, and then... Um, you know, uh, we quickly built a narrative out of it, and, and, the, and the rest is history. But it, that's really where it came from. I'm just picturing Stephen Colbert sitting at his desk saying, These guys get the threat I've been trying to talk about for so many yeah. years. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that whole bit is hilarious. And, you know, we, you know at some point we'd love to, uh, to, to put it in front of him and be kind of like, Hey, man, we get you. You know what I mean? Like, we understand. <laughs> the threat is the, strugg- the struggle is real. Maybe yeah. it'll be a, maybe it'll be a character in future issues. We don't know, but you know, one of my favorite characters <laughs> in the book is I love Silva in the book because of how she yeah, describes the go. scenario she's in. It's much more different than Burke. So in the book, Cheryl's Bear Fighter, how important is it to have someone like Silva, who is more grounded and is able to step back and see how ridiculous just the situation overall is? It's. It, I'm glad you said that. It's first of all, Silva is amazing. Love Silva. Love that character. She's fantastic, and she does some really, really great stuff um, throughout the rest of the series. But, uh, but no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, for this kind of book, you we found that it um, we we very much needed an, an every uh, an every woman, um, someone who who is the lens through which you can view the very elastic world of shirtless bear fighter. Because, yeah, as you say, I mean, it, it's pretty bonkers. 
it's not so crazy that things like a lot of people will be like, nothing makes sense, but it's actually not really accurate. Like the book is very careful to obey the laws that it sets up within the world. It's kind of like, uh, you know, bears can talk and there's a few other things that we establish in the book, but for the most part, as outlandish as it is, it's not insane, even though it's totally bonkers at the same time, if that makes any sense at all. But yeah, no, I think you need someone to ground everything, uh, someone that, are per- that readers can relate to, uh, someone who's asking the questions that they're asking when they encounter some of these more you know, mad concepts that we have to throw at them. Uh, so I think it helps orient people and invest them in the narrative uh, smoother and um, give them someone to relate to quicker. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, as, as hilarious and crazy as this book is, you guys actually managed to sneak in some serious moments, too. As a matter of fact, we get to see the origin of Shirtless, which is really funny in the first issue, but we also find out <laughs> about a tragic incident in his past. So without spoiling anything, how much more will readers learn about what happened that day in future issues? Oh, it's uh, it's critical to the telling. I mean, you'll, you'll absolutely... Uh, there's much, much more to learn about that instance uh, or that or that moment in Shirtless's origin, um, you're really only getting a surface look at it in the first issue. And it, and it does become, uh, you know, a primary uh, focus and motivator throughout the series as we learn more about what exactly happened and how it happened and why it happened. And, of course, you know, the first issue is being released on June 21st. And there's a big reveal at the end. It's going to have a major impact on the story going forward. But without spoiling anything, what are some things that have you really excited over the next issues? Oh my gosh, there's there's so much, um, a ton more in terms of like just the fight comic aspect of this, you know what I mean? Like a lot more, a lot more big, uh, high energy, dynamic uh, bear fights and battles with, with characters, who, you know, who aren't bears um, as well coming up. Uh, and then tons of comedic moments, like some really, really funny, funny stuff coming up, like Hillbilly Warlock in issue two, like, oh my gosh, he's like, he's the, he's the best. <laughs> I hope people uh, really respond to him. He's great. And then, yeah, just from a narrative standpoint, you know what I mean? Like, uh, there's more story to come, you know, which I know it's, it's, it's one of those things that not, not everybody's really going to be expecting with this story. You know, they're going to become like, oh, it's gags and it's fights and, and that's it, right? And it's like, well, no, not really, actually. We, we, it's kind of the total package, triple threat of comics where you kind of get, you know, a full meal of like uh, all of it, you know. So we're excited about for readers to discover that as they go along. And they can discover Shirtless Bear Fighter on June the 21st at their local comic shops and digitally. Of course, that's when the war on bearers starts. But, Jody, Nick mentioned Silva a little bit early on. And in this book, there's something very specific that Burke uses to distract her in a very crucial moment. So what's one thing that no matter what, no matter how focused you are, always distracts you when you're trying to get things done? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well... Okay, so one of the things that was, I'll tell you this, one of the things that distracted me and Sebastian a lot early days when we started to, when we were living together, before we actually even built this book, was uh, we used to play Tekken a lot. And uh, I used to always play Kuma. I don't know if you guys are video game nerds. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. The, 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 big, the big brown bear. Kuma's the big bear character in Tekken. And I used to just like stomp Sebastian with Kuma, just like mash him. <laughs> and, and he used to he used to hate it so much, and it drove him crazy. And and so I think that in some ways, uh, you know, this book is sort of like Sebastian's secret revenge on Kuma. <laughs> That's where the so, anger comes from. The anger makes so, so much yeah, sense but, now. 
<laughs> yeah, but there were definitely many times where we would just, you know, let ourselves to be distracted by, you know, rounds of Tekken. I mean, Tekken is a is a amazing game, and you know, in the first issue, <laughs> you no, know, it really is. You had the new one that came out, and it's really, really awesome. So, of course, you know, going back to the comic in the first issue, shirtless is paid to fight the war on bear in a very different way. I'll just say that. <laughs> so. Jody, excluding money, if you were to be paid to write something in multiples of a certain object, what would it be and why? Oh God, I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it would have, probably have to be um, either guitars or I'm gonna say guitars. Guitars. There, I love guitars. guitars. Is, a good answer. is it is it a certain type of guitar, like a Les Paul or something like that? I love all guitars. I love guitars. I play guitar. I, I've never been. I've never played it enough to become like. You know, a professional musician or anything <laughs> to be a Segovia, uh, uh, <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. But but no, I still love it, and I still play guitars and uh, play guitar, and I uh, and uh, yeah. So probably if somebody could could really butter me up with some a nice collection of uh, guitars. Well, well, here's a question for you then, since you're a music aficionado. If if shirtless bear fighter was a professional wrestler in the WWE, what would his theme music be when he entered the ring? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh my God! What do I do? It's too many options, guys. I should have. I, I should have. I should have known this. Should have studied up. I'm sure that there's like a there's some kind of a bear themed something. Maybe the Johnny Cash. Probably. Um, <laughs> some kind of a you know just the spirit of a of a bearded warrior in the forest just kind of. Living <laughs> <his whole life. laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's got to be got to be a ton of options out there. Easy top for the bit for the beards. There you go. There you go. You couldn't really go the sharp American dressed classic man, rock. though. You couldn't really go with sharp dressed man because he is sure. Oh, I actually, I actually disagree. I think sharp dressed man is a, is a fine choice. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, I think the rope belt really sells it. <laughs> Just got paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In spoiler. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. And, but yeah, you know, I think Charlotte's Bear Fighter would make itself right at home in, in the world wrestling uh, entertainment. And before you know, we let you go, I want to talk about Neil Vendrell's uh, Palaces Art, and of course, the subtleties have been placed. Oh, yeah. in it. So when you first saw your story brought to life by Neil's art and Michael Spicer's colors, what were your first impressions of their work and how it fits the story you and Sebastian are telling? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked, because Neil, so talk, starting off with Neil, um, Neil hasn't done a lot of work in American comics. This is one of his first sort of forays into that uh, that industry, um, but he is uh, he is fantastic. He's an amazing artist. He's getting better with every page. Um, he's a brilliant cartoonist. He, the thing is, he does so many things well, is the thing. And a book like this is very tricky or, or uh, deceptively difficult to pull off. Um, we've spoken about that in other interviews before, just about how, you know, because there are so many different aspects of the book, there is the fight, you know, big, big dynamic fights aspect of it. There's the, uh, the comedy aspects and the jokes and comedic timings hard to pull off in any medium. Uh, and then you also have to get the storytelling right because, like, that's in there as well. And so he's really great with acting and cartooning and, uh, you know, he, he really checks a lot of the boxes that, that uh, we really need him to check. And for all the crazy that we throw at him, he doesn't blink. He pulls it all off um, like, a, like a, you know, a master in the making. Like it's, really, it's really cool to see. Uh, I can't wait for people to see what he does in the upcoming issues. 
uh, and then from uh, Mike Spicer's standpoint, you know, Mike came on and, um, you know, really kind of set the tone for this book. Uh, very polished, very professional. Um, makes it kind of look like the best, we like to say it looks like the best Saturday morning cartoon that, that never happened uh, kind of a thing. So there's a real animated life that he kind of gives to the whole the whole book. And and speaking of, so does uh, so does Dave Lanphier, our letterer uh, extraordinaire. Dave, you know, is, is is an outstanding letterer, has been for many years, but he brings so much bounce to the book. You know, there's so much energy in life to his letters, and his uh, particularly sound effects and and stuff like that. So, uh, really working with a lot of um, pros and very lucky to be doing so on this book. Well, you can find out just how crazy the war on bear is going to be when Shirtless Bear Fighter hits your local comic shops and digital retailers on June the 21st. So happy to have one of the writers and co-creators of the book with us this week. It's Jody LaHoop. Jody, thanks for taking the time, man. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Well, James, if there was a certain comic book series that Zangi from Street Fighter would approve of, it's definitely Shirtless Bear Fighter from Image Comics. <laughs> I would absolutely think so, and and all the combination moves. Hey, maybe Shirtless has been training with a little Street Fighter, or maybe some Tekken. Who knows, but uh, the guy's got some pretty strong moves. Yeah, he does, man. He's got a killer beard as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it would take me a long time. But uh, I, th- I don't think my shirtless bear fighter cosplay is coming anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> shirtless with them fighter. <laughs> I do have rope, though, so I've already got one one checked off the list. And you have jeans. I so do. Wow, I'm, I'm halfway there. You're halfway there. Nice. <laughs> but no, it was it was fun, man, You know, talking to Jody LaHoop about the series. I mean, it is literally a, a crazy series, but as he mentioned, it's one of those series where it's crazy – but it knows when to reel it back and not go overboard with it. Yeah, and, and when we talked about it originally, and, and even when you reviewed it, this book is everything you hope it's going to be, but then they give you so much more. They actually do add a little bit of a serious element into it. There's so many books that, that are similar to this that have zero story, and it's all about that shock value. There's a story here. There's actually a story to follow, and there are layers to the stories. So, I mean, bravo to, to Jody and Sebastian and everybody involved in this thing for just putting something together that's not only entertaining, but actually, like like he was saying, is, is sort of grounded in reality in a way, too. And plus, you know, we talked about the art later on in the interview and how there are certain subtleties. I'm not going to say what they are because I want them to be a surprise for people because it's going to catch them off guard and it's going to make them laugh, I think, really, really hard. When you see some of these things, they're in the background. And some of these things that, I'll just say, shirtless is uh, in, the, in control of, I'll say that. You you really, really get an appreciation for just for the art style and the storytelling because, again, it's one of those things where this is something that will catch people off guard in a good way. And, you know, we read a lot of Batman. We read a lot of serious books. It's nice to have a book like Shirtless Bear Fighter where it's just so funny and so outrageous and just what it does with its storytelling. And it just it's, it presents a nice balance, if you will. Yeah, and you see so many creators have come out voicing their support for the book and other other people as well, and it's just absolutely amazing, and rightfully so. This is a book, just go to your local shop, pre-order it, tell them that you want Shirtless Bear Fighter when it comes out on June 21st, or if you're, you do the digital thing, you can pre-order it there. This is one... You know, start with the first issue, you're going to want all five after that, I promise you that. 
Exactly. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Joey LaHoop, co-writer of Shortless Bear Fighter from Image Comics, for coming on the podcast this week and talking with us about the book. Remember, it's going to be on sale June 21st at your local comic shop and online as well. But hey, if you want more of us during the week, feel free to hit us up, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downandnerdy757. You can find me on Twitch, Twitter, and Instagram at MerkWithOneArm. I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. If you're thinking, man can't remember all that. Here's what you do. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. We've got an About Us section up there if you want to find out about us, if you want to find out just more about the show in general, and maybe what else has been on this week's show. Maybe you forgot about something we talked about in Nerd News. Just click on this week's section. It's got a list of everything we talked about right there, and even links where you can buy great books like Shirtless Bear Fighter right there at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, passive comic book reading, always bag and board your comics.